Good morning. The word of God from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Jesus prays in the garden before his crucifixion. Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bailey, for reading that passage for us. I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures, which may or may not be in the seat in front of you, page 859, Matthew chapter 6. We are in our series, The Lord's Prayer, practicing partnership with God. And as our Lord teaches us to pray in his Sermon on the Mount, we find these words in verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This morning we'll focus our attention on the end of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As some of you know, uh, because you've interacted in various capacities with my wife Elizabeth and I, we have pretty restrictive diets due to some long-term effects from parasites that we picked up on some international ministry travel. So that means that our bodies can't process foods that most people have no issue processing. Our bodies treat those foods like a foreign substance, something to be attacked, not something to receive nourishment from. So there are times, probably about once a week, where Elizabeth and I play this fun little game. The game is called, if you could eat anything right now, what would you eat? No surprise that uh, the answer to that game most often is pizza. Sometimes it's Mexican cuisine. 
Sometimes for me, it's uh, Mountain Dew and Oreos, and some of you college students know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a fun, if not a very fulfilling game. We talk about what we want to eat, but we can't. When we talk about what we want, we're talking about desires. And when our desires are read collectively, we're talking about the human will, what we want, what we desire most above all. Now, in our natural state, our will is hidden, and it desperately wants something much more sinister than Mountain Dew and Oreos. It wants to be in control. It wants what Satan offered to Eve. You will be like God. We want what we want when we want it. And we want others to help us get what we want. I'm guessing you can relate to this. Just think back to the last time you were truly angry or really sad. Was it because someone crossed your will? Or was it because some deep desire was left unfulfilled? See, each of us has a will. God made us that way. It's one of the ways we are made in God's image. And not everything that we want is necessarily wrong. But our wills have gotten out of whack, bent out of shape to the point that our wills often want what we should not want. And our wills are actually stronger than our minds. Our intellect cannot hold a candle to the weight, the strength of our wills. And eventually, if we give in to our wills, at certain times, it will create addictive pathways in our mind to the things that are deadly and dangerous. Our wills are misshapen, bent, twisted. Theologically, the word is depraved, morally corrupted. Our will has been so corrupted that even when we long for something good, we often want it for the wrong reasons. Take unconditional love, for example. Is this something good, something we ought to long for? Absolutely. But why do we often want unconditional love? So that we can do whatever we want to, whenever we want to, however we want to, and still feel loved and accepted by someone. One of the creeds our culture recites daily is, be true to yourself. You do you. Some of you may know the name Beckett Cook. He was a gay man working, he is working in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and God saved him. In his book, A Change of Affection, Cook writes this, the self is corrupted by sin, so why be true to that? The whole idea of being true to yourself is bound to the exaltation of self. It carries the implications of making yourself your own God, 
putting yourself and your desires, your will, on a pedestal and worshiping them. Being true to yourself is nothing short of idolatry. So in Matthew 6.10, as Jesus teaches us to pray, God, in His grace, enters our existence in the person of the Lord Jesus, truly God and truly man, and He puts on our lips some of the most difficult words we may ever say to God. Your will be done. Let's unpack this petition asking a series of questions. Number one, whose will? Whose will are we talking about? Well, clearly the answer is God's will. Not my will, not Satan's will, and not man's will. Father, not my will be done, your will be done. This request easily dies on the edge of our lips because the request is at odds with our natural inclination when our heads lift off our pillows every morning. We want to exert our will in subtle ways over a spouse or in not-so-subtle ways over a child. We want to exert, impose our will in undeniable ways in our sphere of influence. You and I wake up in the fog of the early morning or the late afternoon, depending on your sleep cycle, with only one will at the foremost of our minds. Ours. If you disagree, let me ask, what's one of the first words almost every child universally learns? It's some version of the word mine. And even though we are too sophisticated or mature to shout mine at the top of our lungs throughout our adult days at our spouse or to our boss or children, we still respond internally, it's my life, my choice, my body, my car, my dreams, my career, my promotion, my work, mine, mine, mine. Thomas Manton went as far as saying that our will is the proudest enemy that Christ has this side of hell. And it's the cause of all the mischief which befalls us. The great contest between us and God is this, whose will shall stand, God's will or ours? And in every sin, we slight the will of God and set up our own. So Lord Jesus, whose will is to be done? Well, not mine, our Father's in heaven. This petition is a prayer of self-denial. It's in line with Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Your will be done, Lord, not mine. And not our great enemies, Satan. Maybe the existence of a being like Satan is something hard for you to believe. 
And I understand your skepticism. We live in a very interesting cultural moment that is more than willing to deny any idea of the supernatural as revealed in Scripture, but is simultaneously engrossed in supernatural horror films. We live in a moment when the existence of God is quickly denied without debate, but at the same time, popular astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson can claim, Tyson rather, can claim with a straight face in a Wall Street Journal article that human beings in our entire solar system may just be the results of an alien computer simulation. Or we might simply be a zoo for the enjoyment of aliens. His words, not mine. So why is it so hard to believe that we have an enemy? Well, to say we have an enemy is to admit that we are in a cosmic battle. A cosmic battle that we cannot wage successfully on our own. And that knowledge demands action. Because if there's a battle, we have to pick sides. And if there's a battle and we must pick sides, then it requires that we reorient our lives entirely. So what better way for an enemy to inflict the most harm and to molest without interference than by blinding our entire culture into believing his existence is a myth or he's a silly caricature? You know, the guy in the red suit with the pointy tail and the pitchfork. But the funny thing is you don't have to travel far outside of Western culture before belief in evil spirits is assumed, not debated. But in the Western world, Satan has convinced us that we are too sophisticated for such nonsense. Evil is a social construct, or it's the result of bad circumstances. And Satan's will is at work in our world. How else do you explain that while civilization has progressed, there are more slaves today in this moment of history than there ever has been. How else do we understand why the drug crisis is so severe? Satan's will is at work. Why are we as a culture left talking about your truth and my truth and her truth as if truth comes in as many shades and palettes as the makeup sold at Walmart. Satan knows there's one truth. And Satan is determined to blind mankind's eyes to that fact. So Lord Jesus, as he's on the earth, he teaches us to pray your will be done, Father. Not mine, not yours, not Satan's. This is a prayer request of subterfuge against our enemy. This may be the most rebellious act we take all week. Father, your will be done. We're also very clearly praying 
that not the will of man would be done. You don't need to be a student of the Bible or of history to see that when men live out their wills and impose them on others, bad things happen. That very reason is why the framers of our Constitution designed three branches of government for checks and balances so no one man or group could unchecked impose his will or their will upon the country. History is not predominantly the story of men and women obeying the will of God. The story of history is predominantly the story of men and women imposing their own will on the world around them, sometimes in the very name of religion, sometimes in the name of science, sometimes in the name of some national or state interest. And so as we bow for prayer before our Father, we pray, Father, your will be done, not my will, not our will, not their will, not the enemy's will. It's a prayer of self-denial. It's a prayer of subterfuge. It's a prayer for submission. Father, your will be done. But second, second question, which will? Which will? As a church, we hold without apology that God is perfectly sovereign in all things. We take verses like Daniel 4.35 very seriously. God does as he wishes, as he desires, as he wants, as he pleases, as he wills with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what have you done? Since God is sovereign, since his desires are sovereign, since he's perfectly in control, then what's the point of praying, Father, your will be done? Isn't it a foregone conclusion? If God is sovereign and he's going to work his will, does it really matter if you and I pray it? Why would Jesus teach us to pray for something that is undoubtedly going to take place? Well, the reason is this. God's will is unlike our own. We only have one facet, if you will, to our will. That one facet is our desires, what we hope will take place, what we long for, what we are working towards. If you hope to make your first million by the time you're 30, you have no guaranteed path to success. You may or may not get there. In fact, that's a pretty fat, fragile way of living life, relying on yourself or others to accomplish your will. But God has two facets to his will. Let's use a number of descriptions to help differentiate between them. God has a sovereign will. It is unalterable and unstoppable. And God has a moral will. His desires for each human being that we may or may not obey. Or we could say God has a will of decree. What he has determined will take place before the foundation of the world. While he also has a will of desire, which is our duty, which we may or may not perform. 
God has his eternal plan, or we could say his providential plan, but God also has prescriptions for human beings which we may or may not follow. And that is why we can find verses like Psalm 115 and 2 Peter 3 in the same Bible. 1 Peter 1.15.3, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. That is God's will of decree, his sovereign, unalterable, unstoppable will. But then we come to 2 Peter 3 and we read this, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting, not desiring, not willing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, God's moral will, his will of desire, his will that prescribes our duty says that we must repent and trust Christ. He commands all men everywhere to repent. But the teachings of Jesus make it clear that not all will repent. So God's will of desire is not always accomplished while God's sovereign will is unalterably accomplished. God's sovereign will is unstoppable. God's moral will is breakable. So this request is practicing partnership with God by inviting Him to accomplish His moral will on earth in and through us and others. And here's the reality. If God was not actively in the business of answering this prayer, not one of us would be in this room this morning worshiping Jesus. The fact that there are any among us following Jesus is evidence that God answers this prayer. He gives faith and repentance. He is actively accomplishing both his sovereign unbreakable will and his breakable moral will. So whose will? Not mine, not yours, not our enemies. God's. Which will? God's moral will, his will of desire. Third question, what about God's will? What specifically are we praying for? Well, we're praying that God's will would be done, worked out, fulfilled, accomplished, obeyed. And this is where we see a cosmic clash, a clash between my will and God's will, a clash between your will and God's will, a clash between Satan's will and God's will. Friend, whether we recognize it or not, you and I wake up on a battlefield every single day. And we are not merely living life on that battlefield. We are part of the battlefield. My heart is is the battlefield, and so is yours. And in the midst of this fight, Jesus teaches his followers to pray, Father, not my will, your will be done. John Piper uses the illustration that prayer becomes a battlefield walkie-talkie. It's a direct line to headquarters a tool to call for air cover, for reinforcements, for medical aid, 
And when the walkie-talkie comes to our lips and we cry out, Father, your will be done, we are praying, in effect, at least three things. We're praying, first of all, and neither of, none of these three are original with me. Thomas Manton points these out. We are praying, first of all, for a heart to do God's will. Because our own will is strong and defiant. Our enemy's will is active and aggressive. The will of other men are clashing violently all around us. And for God's will to be done in me and through me and by me, then God must grant me a heart to do his will. And same for you. He must change our wills. He must change our desires. And parents, you instinctively understand this. You don't just want your child to change his or her behavior, do you? Of course you want at least that. You don't want them to be 15 years old and screaming their heads off and throwing food across the room. You want them to change their behavior. But you don't just want behavior modification. You want their heart to be engaged. You want them to obey willingly with an internal smile, not a barely concealed scowl. But you also know that you can't change your child's heart. Only God can. And it's the same for you and for me. Psalm 119.36, give me a desire for your rules rather than for wealth gained unjustly. God must give us the heart to do what he desires. And friends, this is the gospel message. God changes our hearts. He changes our desires so that they become more and more a mirror of his Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean he will give you whatever you want? It means he will give you a new heart and new desires and give you what you want. And what will you want? Him. Delight in the Lord. Second, we're praying that God would give us the skill or the wisdom to do God's will. It's not enough merely to have a heart. Wisdom in Scripture is the ability to put knowledge into action, to come to a problem or a situation and skillfully apply the truth holistically to move forward. And friends, we live in a world where we desperately need God's wisdom to do his will. Psalm 119.34, give me understanding, wisdom, so that I might observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Give me wisdom so I obey you, God. Applying God's moral will is not always cut and dry. You personally will need God's wisdom to discover how God wants you to live out faith, to live out your faith when it comes to, say, 
presidential elections. And it takes wisdom to recognize that other believers may come to a different conclusion on how to apply God's moral will in a situation like that. So we need a heart to do God's will. We need the strength, or rather wisdom, to do God's will. Third, we need strength to do God's will. When God gives us a new desire, a new heart to do his will, and when he gives us wisdom to know how to do his will, his will, our prayer is not yet complete because we need the strength to actually move forward. Let me give you just one example from Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So church, for every single one of us, whether married, singled, or dating, God's will is that we use the gift of sex in the way that God intended solely within the marriage relationship. And you and I need the courage and strength to say no to our desires and to our culture in order to say a better yes to God. Father, your will be done. Whose will? Our Father's. Which will? His moral will. What about His will? We're praying that we need a heart inclination towards it, the wisdom and the courage to do it. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus, we will no longer need to pray this prayer. We will be like him, perfectly submitted to the Father. We will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. But until now, now, here on earth, is the time to pursue doing God's will. But let's ask one final question, okay? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? And we can answer this in one word. Jesus. It matters because of Jesus. You see, follower of Christ, Jesus accomplished God's will in your place for you perfectly. Jesus obeyed God in every respect, perfectly fulfilling the moral law of God for us, his will of desire and our duty for us when we could not, when we were incapable of it. And why did he do that? To satisfy God's wrath so that we might be accepted by God, not based on our own righteousness, for we have none, but based solely on Jesus' merits so that God the Father might adopt us based on Jesus' perfect obedience, not yours and not mine. So our obedience earns no grace from God. It earns no favor from God. But it does honor and praise Jesus as we obey God out of love and gratitude for deliverance from sin and self. 
Do you see how this understanding of God's will and what Jesus has done for us in the gospel totally transforms obedience? Obedience is no longer this something we have to do in order to feel accepted by God. No, God has accepted us in Christ. Obedience is what we get to do out of response to the gospel. So God, you you desire that sex be reserved for marriage? Yes! You have saved me from my eternal sin. You've forgiven me. Why would I not give you my life, my body, my soul, my everything? Our obedience is not a means to grace. It's a response of love and gratitude to grace. Second, Jesus delivers us from the bondage of our own will and Satan's will. So Jesus not only accomplished God's will for us, while he was doing that, he was actively delivering us from our own will. So when we pray, Father, your will be done, we are pleading with him to bring in our lives the evidence that Jesus has done what he came to do. Titus 2, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all of wickedness. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus took on flesh that through death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. If you are a follower of Jesus then sin's power over you has been broken, period. End of sentence. You are no longer a slave to sin. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he offers forgiveness for you for every way in which you broke God's will this week. Every single way. It's all covered by the blood. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you receive him, third, you are promised the empowerment of the Spirit. Jesus empowers his followers to do his will by means of the Spirit that he sent. Friend, there is no way to actively partner with God in our world, no other way to actively partner with God in our world than to submit our wills to him. And there may be an area in your life right now where that seems impossible. But Jesus has given to you his spirit to enable you to obey him. And that is the promise of the gospel. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. This petition matters this morning, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus. So if you find yourself in bondage to sin, unable to break its iron grip on you, maybe that's the point. Self-reliant effort has never provided spiritual deliverance for anybody ever. The deliverance you need comes from Jesus by the Spirit. 
So what is God calling us to this morning? He's calling us to repentance from our self-reliance. He's calling us to cling by whatever small faith we may have in a mighty Savior. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But he doesn't end there. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to want, to desire, and to do his good pleasure. Let's pray together. Father, we ask above all else this morning and in line with the teaching of our Lord that your will would be done among us this week. We pray for a heart inclination towards your will. We pray for wisdom in our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces to know how to apply obedience to your will. And we ask for the strength and courage to then do your will when all the pressures of culture and of our own heart is against us. Father, we pray these things confidently because you have given your son Jesus to forgive our law-breaking and to empower our law-keeping by your Spirit. So, Father, pour out your grace by your Spirit on us, we pray. In Jesus' name.